Hello and welcome to the Reaper's Digest podcast. I'm Hello, Blake. Everyone. And sitting here with me across the internet, of course, is Duke Ralston. Just hanging out in the ether on the internet. Right. The infamous and illustrious Duke. <laughs> How you doing today, buddy? I'm doing great, brother. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. What are we talking about tonight? Well, uh, we are talking about uh, The Hanged Man. Uh, incredible story. Yeah, The uh, Hanging Stranger by Philip K. Dick. The Hanging Stranger by Philip K. Dick. And yeah. uh, where did I get the hang? I must have been I, I with my Terra deck or something. Yeah. <laughs> It's my favorite card because, you know, upside down, it's the fool. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but this was, um, I, I, you know, I had, I had, I was familiar with Dick's work, but didn't realize I was familiar with Dick's work because I didn't mm. really, when, when you brought it up, I didn't really associate the name with some of the other stuff he had written. Uh, uh, the man, in, was the man in High Castle? Yes. Great work. Very, uh, very famous work. Very, um, you know, I don't expect my science fiction horror to be quite so horrible. Yeah. And this one is every bit as much horror as a Stephen King short story. Maybe more. Oh, yeah. You know, this is, uh, whoo, boy. Oh, it's a rough one. <laughs> yeah. It's a rough one. Yeah. So, this is a podcast where we analyze horror fiction. If you don't know that, uh, well, you're probably new, and we're glad to have you. So, yes, we, yes, we are. Great beers and great horror and great science fiction. Absolutely, man. What are you drinking tonight? Speaking of beers. Well, great news. Uh, Tennessee Macabre went back into production yesterday. That's the oh. good news. I had two excellent beers lined up for tonight, and the bad news, I drank them both. <laughs> <laughs> but I have my fallback, uh, Big River IPA, which I have had on the show before. Uh, it's made here in Chattanooga, and it is an excellent IPA. Well, that's awesome. That's your standby, right? That's my standby. I, you know, IPA is kind of a new love for me. I didn't start drinking them until a few years ago, mm -hmm. and um, I've really sort of fallen in love with. Them. And uh, I'm as likely as not used to. I used to be a stout guy, and I still love stout. But as likely as not, I'm going to order an IPA. Yeah. I've got Creature Comforts out of Athens. They're yeah. Bebo, which is a Pilsner. I've never had it. 
I didn't pick this out, full disclosure. My wife did. Oh. I had to work. Yeah. So, and instead of buying it on the way to work and leaving it in the car all day, I figured I'd get her to help me out. Well, that works. So, here's the moment of truth. Salute. Mm. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I was going to give it a little sip, but then I went all the way. <laughs> There's nothing like uh, a Pilsner on a hot summer day. And that's what we are in. You yes, know? absolutely. It was, it was uh, I don't know about where you're at, but it was something like 90 here today. About the same here, uh, eighty or 90, somewhere upper eighties, ninety degrees, really high humidity. It's kind of soupy. Yeah, it's like hanging out in a in a uh, in a sauna, right? Yeah, it was like a drive day on the Louisiana Bayou. You know, <laughs> you know, I had a buddy once, a metalhead friend of mine, and uh, in this hotel for a little bit. Yep. And they had a sauna. And he was like, you know, I've never been in a sauna. I want to try it out. I said, yep. okay. So he's sitting in there about 10, 15 minutes. He looks at me real serious and goes, so it's just a hot room. And I was like, yeah, buddy. He goes, I That's don't it. think I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Got a question for you. It has nothing to do with Philip Dick. And it's just from out of nowhere. Scariest setting for you. What is the scariest place you can set an off or a book or a short story or whatever? Uh, okay. So it depends on what kind of horror you're doing. Of course. Um, I think the thing, mm -hmm. the John Carpenter version of the thing. Yeah. One of the scariest settings ever. Cause there's yeah. no. Experience. Yeah. Yeah, that is a scary setting. Yeah, Alien is a very scary setting. Mm -hmm. But there's something about the hometown that it could happen here kind of vibe. Yes, I agree. I agree. I think, what would you say? For me, the scariest setting, now the hometown vibe is, is scary. Okay, mm -hmm. and that's probably my second scariest setting. But to me, the scariest setting is Louisiana Bayou. To me, that is uh, a scarier setting than Transylvania. Transylvania is almost like saying fairyland to me because I've never been there. Most people haven't. Yeah. I have. You have? Oh, that's right. You have. We taught there for a little while. That's right. It's wild. Um, but the Bayou country. You know, it's steeped in voodoo and hoodoo. And I grew up, my grandmother was from New Orleans. She used to tell me stories about Marie Laveau, Laveau and the Loop Guru. And to me, that is, uh, I'm thinking about Moon of the Wolf set there. And then one of the 1940s mummy movies was set there. And to me, that's just a really scary setting. Yeah. That Moon of the Wolf, that's a good movie. I love that movie. I actually watched it when it showed on ABC as the ABC's movie of the week in 1973. There you go. Yeah. That's a good movie. I haven't watched that in a while. Yeah. It's up there. We, uh, 
We're going to have to talk about werewolves soon. Yes, we are. We're going to have to. We're going to have to get into that. And that's actually one of my favorite werewolf movies. We're going to have to get into that subject very soon. Very soon. But uh, speaking of hometown horror, uh huh, we've got the Hanging Stranger. We got the Hanging Stranger, and that is hometown horror. Yeah. That is. So, Philip K. Dick, let me give you a little background on the man, as we always do. Philip Kindred Dick, December 16th, 1928 to March 2nd, 1982. He's an American writer known for science fiction and speculative fiction, I would say. He was a master of the dystopian novel, wrote 44 published novels, and about 121 short stories, most of which appeared in sci-fi magazines during his life. Once again, that's that weird tales, fantastic stories connection. Yes. Um, so, Phil K. Dick was a strange dude. Yes, he was. <laughs> I was reading about earlier. It's weird, yes. So he uh, he begins his authorial career uh, publishing science fiction stories in the early fifties. Uh, he publishes the Man in the High Castle in sixty two, which gets him a lot of acclaim. He wins at a Hugo Award for the best novel, and he's only thirty three. So he starts following that up with just. Hit after hit. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which uh, you may know as Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, he, uh, in 1974, he publishes Flow My Tears, the policeman said, which wins a Joseph or John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. Uh, he starts to uh, get a little weirder as time goes on. He publishes A Scanner Darkly in Vallis, uh, a collection of his nonfiction writing on the themes of theology, the nature of reality, all kinds of hooky spooky stuff. Is published posthumously or, uh, after his death. I'm going to... Yeah. Say after his death, since I butchered that word. Um, so, the big thing to remember about Philip K. Dick is uh, he's a crazy person. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He, I was uh, reading some of that, and I was thinking that maybe the reason that you and I are not millionaire writers is we're too sane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, I've got a really big shrinks, shrinks bill that might disagree with you. but <laughs> I don't think you can pair with Philip Dick. <laughs> so, in the 70s, he starts to have these hallucinations, right? While coming down off sodium pentothal, which was used as a, uh, that's, you know, true serum, right? Yeah. Um, they were using it as a narcotic uh, pain reliever to, uh, I think, do some dental work for him. Yeah, I want to know who his dentist was. I mean, Lord. Right? I've never <laughs> used sodium pentothal. 
Yeah. You know, you got to think that's a, that's, <laughs> that's Dr. Feelgood, the dentist, you know? Absolutely. So he describes the hallucinations he begins having by saying, I experienced an invasion of my mind by a transcendentally rational mind, as if I had been insane all my life and suddenly had become sane. Which is a fun way of putting that. Yes. Um, so he starts saying there's a pink beam coming from an ancient intelligence, Vallis, mm -hmm. the satellite, that is beaming directly into his brain and allowing him to see other realities. Mm -hmm. So he didn't like to say he was writing fiction. He liked to say that he was viewing other realities. The man in the high castle was a, t a different timeline, one where the Nazis had won. Yeah. You know, flow um, my tears, the policeman said, is a, is a, a future that could be. Mm -hmm. Which I think adds to some of the interesting, uh, the interesting nature uh, of his story in the settings. Yes. You know? They're Absolutely. they're in the future, but it's never like you know when you see uh, that crawl at the beginning of a sci-fi movie. Yeah, it says like the rings of Saturn three thousand twenty three. Mm -hmm. It's never like that for him. No, it's not linear. No, he he, he is he is not a linear a linear thinker. Um, it's clearly, you know, it's it's difficult. You know, there's a fine line between profit and crazy. Oh yeah. And you know, I hate to sit down and and say, okay, this dude is crazy. He seems to me like he definitely is, but he's almost into prophecy, and he's and he's looking. He's clearly looking at re, uh, alternate realities in different dimensions is he seeing them who knows you know um one of the things you know that go kind of goes back to apollo and uh, not sybil but uh oh i can't think of her name the chicken troy that apollo was in love with and he gave her the gift of prophecy but he cursed her by making everybody think she was crazy and not believe cassandra cassandra yes Cassandra. So, and that you know, as as in all mythology, there's truth in that. If you've ever known someone, and I have met people that I truly believe saw things that were coming, they're crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. one would be right. Yeah, you would be. I actually wrote and directed a short film called The Cassandra Complex. Uh, Okay. It was about someone reading tarot. Oh. And she, uh, she sees her own demise, but can't convince anyone of it. Yeah. Yeah. Till it's too late. Right. And there, there's also, there, there is, when you start getting into dystopian thinking and having grown up in the rural South, um, 
I have grown up, I'm sure you have too, grown up around people whose religious dogma is um, created by end times thinking. They're all wrapped up in end times thinking. And you start to get of a dualistic view where the people that believe that have their own reality mm -hmm. that is from ordinary reality that other people have. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you kind of get a feel for that and what Dix is saying in his works here. In his, in his, uh, you know, he's talking about his trans, uh, transcendental reality and then he's talking about this kind of religious reality. Really, really kind of neat. There's not neat. Yeah. Well, it's certainly interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it reminds me, my band used to, uh, Blood Oaks, check us out. We're, uh, we're certainly a band. Um, <laughs> very nice. Um, but we, uh, we used to have people on stage carrying signs that say, the end is nigh. Yeah. And then they would flip the sign over and it would say, are we there yet? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that was sort of that idea that uh, it, it's, it goes back to the idea of preppers, too, mm -hmm. yes. a little bit. They yeah. seem really excited about the end of the world. Yes. And I'm like, I, I really thought we were all in the same boat with the whole, I hope that doesn't happen. No, we're really not. <laughs> that is... That right there is the organizational uh, factor behind 20th century cults, most of them. If you look at, they're looking at end times prophecy and they're looking at speeding it on and they're ready to leave the planet and go to heaven. Yeah. That was uh, Heaven's Gate. Yeah. yeah. Jim Jones. You know, oh, yeah. You can, you can go on down the line and that sort of thinking um, – and, and I've, I've been in environments where, you know, my own religious background was not heavily based on revelations, but I've been around a lot of people whose religious backgrounds, you know, they don't know anything else in the Bible, but they know revelations. And like maybe that's Yeah. Like yeah. Pardon? Oh, I just was repeating myself again. Um, it was a throwaway comment. Okay. And, and you see them, if you spend any time around them, you see them slipping closer and closer to the abyss, you know. And I wonder if somebody like Philip Dick is not hanging in that abyss as well. And uh, this is somebody we've never talked about, and I hate to bring somebody out of the blue in, H.G. Wells. Uh, Wells is important. Yeah. But he was he was he was slip sliding on the edge of that abyss too. Maybe not from a religious perspective, but he was definitely, you know, he definitely well, had an issue. Well, you know, the thing about Wills or Wells rather is he was sort of the father of speculative fiction. Yes, absolutely. Not necessarily science fiction. I would say that's probably Verne. Yeah, but. Or, you know, you can, the, the Mary Shelley, mm -hmm. you know, the argument could be made that she writes the first true Western sci-fi story. I, I would be one that would make that argument, but yeah, I agree. 
But um, Wells is really all about that predicting the future and coming yeah. up with an allegory for the times we're having. You know? Right. I think we're dancing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we're sort of dancing around the hanging stranger here. Yeah, well, let's jump in. Yeah, because I think a lot of this has to do with, uh, with you know, his mental state, right? His mental state, yeah. So the protagonist is a guy named Edward Loyce, right? Right. He's a store owner. He sells TVs. He's going into work after a day of digging in his cellar, trying to repair his foundation. On his way into work, he sees um, he sees a body hanging from a lamppost right in the middle of the town. This is the inciting incident that kicks everything off. He is freaked out. Right? Yes. But no one else seems to notice or care. I, I say notice, but they do. They just don't care. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, well, you know. some reason it's hanging there. Yeah. What's the guy saying? He goes, we should, uh, Lois says we should call the police. And the, uh, the guy next door goes, oh, they probably know about it. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. Yeah. Yeah. So, he eventually finds evidence that these alien or interdimensional insects have taken over. Mm -hmm. He uh, runs home. He escapes the police, runs home, has to kill one of his kids who has turned into one of these insects. Mm -hmm. um, and then he escapes into the night to run over to the next town. Right? Yes. Talks to the police commissioner who basically pats him on the shoulder and says, okay, well, it's good you're here. Uh, and uh, he said, well, you know, why do you think that body was there? And the commissioner says, bait. It was there as bait. You announced yourself, didn't you? Well, Long story made incredibly short. A the story ends with a, another man coming out of a bank vault, uh, only to see Lois hanging in the town square. Yep. Very Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Oh, very. And that, that's now. Forgive me for, but when was it? When was this written? When was this published? Ooh. I think let you said me, it. I did say at the beginning. Let me look back at my notes. It was published in. I don't think I did say actually. It seems like it was published in the late fifties. Yeah, I would say fifties, uh, early sixties. Yeah. So you kind of have. This, you know, you have this small town setting like we were talking about. But you kind of have you have this middle class American, successful American guy. You know, he's got a television for 
and uh, he's working on his own foundation to save a little money for his wife. Very middle class, and comes home, and he's got a nuclear family. I mean, the 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 textbook nuclear family. It's him, his wife, and two point two kids, and. It's one of his kids has been turned into this insectoid creature. But I assume that all, both of his his wife and his other child is too, or in some stage that's never explained. But they've gone over to the other side. Yeah, so, they're mind controlled or something's got them. Something's going on. So you've got this very, uh, you know, the height of the Eisenhower years. You've got this very model family. It, you know, and it's it's all screwed up. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very much the antithesis of what we saw in ourselves in America. And you have the invasion from the outside. Uh, this is also the height, the height of the Cold War. So you have people all over the country that are digging bomb shelters and preparing. And even though Dick is not writing about that specifically. You know, the guy working on the foundation is safe uh, and, and comes out and knows he, he's not under mind control. The guy in the bank vault comes out of the bank vault and he's not under their mind control. So there is an element of this Cold War uh, nuclear attack and foreign invasion thing going on in the story. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that, uh, man, you touched on a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, we get to it naturally. Uh, the idea of the bombshell. Yeah, let's get to it. Because this is the McCarthy era, right? Yes. Yes. Published in 1953. You were right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know the bomb shelter as the protection. Americans have always viewed the underground as protection for some reason. Right. You know, um, so it's interesting that he's in his own little makeshift bomb shelter. Mm -hmm. The idea of the all the insect is important. Yes, uh, because insects are inherently collectivist. Mm -hmm. Communist. Right? Yes, communist. You know, and Lois is an individual. Yes. The last individual, yes. right? Right. So, if you're talking about what American fears were at the time, mm -hmm. right? Because I think this is aggressively American, right? Oh yeah, There's, this this is uh, this is like apple pie and Budweiser. I mean, this is pure Americana. Yeah, uh, <laughs> both things that on acid, but it's Americana. Yeah, Budweiser and apple pie are both things that were started by Dutch immigrants. Exactly. <laughs> I love it, but um, yeah, we're we're talking about this individualistic mm -hmm. nature, right? And, what if and, you're the one who's saying kind of fear? Yeah, there. He is, Lois is individualized because he recognizes the, the other that's attacking. He recognize, recognizes, as you say, the collectivists, the insects. So he recognizes the communists. But he's also 
an individualist. He's separated from the other townspeople. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, you see radical uh, conformity in the town, kind of the radical McCarthyism, because everybody's walking by and saying, well, if that guy's hanging, he must supposed to be hanging. Yeah. I'm sure the police know he's up there. They probably put him there. Yeah. And everybody's okay with that. Yeah. So is this an allegory for communism? I think so. For a communist invasion. I think it preys on that kind of fear. Yes. I also, however, think that it is the fear of conformity. Yes. You know, if you can tell one bee from another, you are a much, you know, you're an entomologist. Right. The average person can't, you know? Right, right. So it's sort of weird. We always go with the uh, with the insect mm-hmm. or the alien. Why do you think that is? I think okay. So, and this is going to get almost political. Okay, I think the biggest threat to our country has never been a communist revolution historically. Mm-hmm. It has been a fascist revolution. I would I'm say not in, I'm not alone in that thought. I think there's a lot of people that would agree, and I'm I'm not I'm talking about uh, you know Fritz Kuhn in the 1930s was a far bigger threat than the socialist and communist leaders that were identified as threats. Mm-hmm. I think that Americans are cognizant of that. No, and I think that there even though that there is a there is a strain in American thought that runs toward that fascism, there is some people that want to distance themselves from that. So we're kind of this to me, Ed Lois is threading the needle between fascism and communism. I would say so. Uh, the thing about the difference between communists and fascists, I think, is uh communists tend to uh hand out pamphlets while fascists tend to try and enforce violence. That's right. That, 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 that is a functional on the street difference. There's a, there's a lot of political differences, yeah, there, yeah. but that is the functional on the street difference. Um, given, uh, given a, given an equal footing. And we see this in Germany. We see it in, in Italy. You see it in Spain, you see it in Argentina. The fascist will lead the communist in a bloody pulp in the streets, and they'll yeah. make up. Yeah, because yeah. it's just not. Yeah, well, well, that's a whole different podcast. It's a whole different, yeah. But I think I think you have a lot of literature that is where people are are threading that threading those two extremes. And they're playing it closer, you know, Americans tend to play it closer to the fascist side than they yeah. do to the communist Marxist side because communism is the great sin in this country. You cannot uh, you cannot embrace any element of communism publicly. You have you have no support. You can you can embrace elements of fascism and 
publicly people will, will will put you down, but privately you'll have people going, you know, my boy's right. You know? So there is um it's a very it's a very fine line. And I think uh, there are a lot of writers out there that, that are aware of this. And I think Phil, I think Phil Nix is obviously aware of this. And he's talking about um you know, the stress and strain between fascism and communism. And he is a middle American who's just trying to get away. Yeah. He's just trying to survive. And he doesn't. No. That's what was so upsetting. Let's talk about structurally. Yeah. You know, you often see um, uh, you often see plot structures depicted as a pyramid. Yeah. This is not. No. No. This we is just a segment in a tree. Yeah. We hit the ground running. Yeah. There's no middling exposition. It's they hit the ground running. They hit the ground running. And when you when you uh, sent me, the, I think you sent me a link to this short story, or I found a link, and we had talked about it. And I looked at it and I looked at the length and I said, how are we going to burn an hour talking on this? Because yeah. it's, I mean, it's, it's a, a 20 minute read maybe. And I, and I read the thing and I'm like, Oh, we could do, we could do eight hours on this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're going to keep it Seriously. to an hour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, you could very easily, turn this into a novel. Oh, yeah. And this is a very impactful short story. Yeah. I think structurally it's super clever. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Opening, with, opening and closing with like the exact same thing. It's cyclical. Yeah. And the, the choice I think there is to imply that these this struggle is never over yeah yeah the struggle of the individual against collective indifference mm -hmm. is never over never ends absolutely i mean i think you know he name checks communists he yeah. name checks fascists yes. he names the ku klux klan yes um and this idea that these things are just going on that they're just happening yes and no one cares yeah i think very important to the story absolutely absolutely and something that okay there's a guy on the bus who um goes after ed and ed later on in the story when he's talking to the commissioner in the other town tells him that this guy recognized what he was and tried to stop him and he figured he must have been known what was going on too and he killed him because mm -hmm. he didn't okay so i'm wondering was this guy really someone that knew what was going on or was he an informant for the insect people did ed lois really make a mistake in killing him yeah you know, I, th I think he did I think, I, th I think the point there is that it is about paranoia. Yeah. 
You know, a lot of this mimics the the uh, a person's descent into mental illness. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that idea that uh, suddenly you have secret knowledge. Everyone's against you. No right. one can be trusted. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. I mean, in this case, he's right, but it's a very unsettling read. Yes. I mean, to me, something about the hanging body, mm -hmm. just the indifference of everyone, it's very unsettling. Mm -hmm. In a small town evil kind of way. Yes. Like we were talking about with Salem's Lot, the big E mm -hmm. and the little E. Yes. You know, and which one is worse? Little E. Oh, I think so. I, I, I absolutely think that the little e is worse um, because it's it's kind of it, the big e you can kind of avoid you can hide in your cellar so to speak to use a pun that we're using and you can you can evade the big e if you're good you can't evade the little e no it's ever present it's ever present and truth be told most of us will never come up against the big e but we face the little e every day of our lives Indifference, I think, Indifference. is the main villain here. Indifference, prejudice. Uh, you could you could talk about a, a lot of things, but yeah, here the big villain is indifference. Mm -hmm. and not only indifference, but trusting in higher ups to do the right thing and blindly follow. Yeah, um, a lot of distrust of the government here. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, power structures in general. Yes. And at a time when it was not cool to do that yet. Oh, no. This is pre-Watergate. It's pre-Watergate. It's pre-hippie. Uh, yeah, 1953, there was no place in the country you could go to find a find, well, almost no place in the country you could go to find a group of like-minded people that distrusted the government. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a stretch, especially for a middle class uh, white guy from the suburbs. Absolutely, absolutely, it just didn't exist. Everything was about, um, you know, it, it was totally fueled by American consumption and the American dream. And if you stepped outside of that, you know, and in that time period, you were just an outsider. Yeah, I would argue yeah. that. Even today, you still are, but less so than you would have been in 1953. At least now, there's a counterculture. Mm -hmm. There was not. There was not a counterculture. There was no punk rock in 1953. No, there was no rock in 1953. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, when did Wanda Jackson show up? Uh, they all show up about 55. Okay. Years away. Two years away from Sun Records and, and all that in 53. Yeah. You know, you want to be bad, you go out and listen to Frank Sinatra. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because as far as like musical scares go, you know, you got heavy metal, you got rap, mm -hmm. but, uh, 
you know, the real big criminals all listen to Sinatra. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, these guys who are like, you know, the mass murderers, they were Sinatra fans. Sinatra. <laughs> all those guys. But, you know, that that is something, and I think we've kind of backed, backed into it. Um, neither one of us can imagine a, ro- a world without rock and roll. And mm. rock and roll is the center of counterculture. Yes. And has been since 1955. Mm-hmm. Uh, jazz, to a degree, was... Okay, let me back up just a minute. Jazz was the center of black culture, which is kind of... It's not really counterculture. Jazz and blues are an alternative culture. Yeah. But counterculture for... Caucasian Americans did not exist until rock and roll comes around. Yeah. And then you start to get a counterculture in, um, you know, white middle-class America. Yeah. Yeah. Before that, especially like you had some beatniks in the, mm-hmm. in the cities, they were listening to jazz. They were culturally appropriating a lot of, uh, black music and things yes. like that. Yes. Um, and, you know, just generally being kind of groovy and into, you know, other people's cultures, which is cool, you know? Yeah. As long as you're not trying to claim you made it or something like that, I see nothing wrong with appreciating someone else's culture. Um, yeah. But in the suburbs, it just didn't exist. Didn't exist, no. Yeah, there was nothing. There was no counterculture. You didn't listen to jazz. Yeah. And you never heard of it. Huh? Probably had never really heard of it. No, no. Yeah. And um, it, it was. It, I think that 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 culture was so. You know, from forty five to fifty five, in the mm-hmm. United States, was so regimented, and uh, I don't think anybody today really has an appreciation for it. It was so, I mean, there was no being outside the norm. There was no coloring outside the lines. Um, Everybody had survived the Nazis, and they were preparing to survive the red red threat. Yeah. And that's kind of what we see here. Yeah. Um, So he is, in a lot of ways, an individualist, uh, clashing with societal norms yes and he probably presages uh the counterculture movement that would come into being later and he is writing in san francisco yeah and san francisco even then that was the center of beatnik culture yeah and beatnik culture kind of kind of precedes uh rock and roll by a few years was never as widespread uh, you didn't see, you know, the main center of beatnik culture was San Francisco, and you didn't see it much outside of San Francisco. There were areas in New York and, and places like that, but it was a West Coast thing. Yeah, it was, and it was mostly had to do not with music, but with poetry. Poetry, yes, art and poetry. Yeah. Um. Um. Uh, Great movie about it. Yes, I'm. I'm thinking the name Little Shop of Horrors, but what was the other one? Bucket of Blood. Yeah, there you go. A bucket of blood. 
Memory ain't working real great tonight. But yeah, but get a plug. We'll see what. One couple of years, we'll see what shakes loose. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But Bucket of Blood is uh, centered on the beatnik movement in San Francisco or Skid Row. Uh, mm-hmm. Little Shop of Horrors is also centered in the same area, but less emphasis on beatnik culture. But um, yeah, that's, but it's that's still that idea of alien life coming down in that. Yeah. You know, you see a lot of this idea of invasion and subversion. This is about the time Invasion of the Body Snatchers comes out of the original. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the day the earth stood still. You have um, a huge, huge fascination with aliens and UFOs. I kind of remember the tail end of that. It's nothing now like it was even in in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. But what happened, you have, um, and this is this is a very literal explanation. I'm not saying that this is the whole explanation. But you have American fighter pilots at the end of World War II are reporting Foo Fighters, mm-hmm. which are uh, basically what would become UFOs. There's a lot of supposition. The Germans developed uh, a plane, the ME-109, that was the first jet fighter plane that uh, was very close to supersonic. wasn't quite supersonic, but very close. And there's a lot of supposition that that's what the Allied aircraft were reporting. But I don't think it was all ME-109s because there weren't that many of them that were built. Uh, if there had been, we'd be speaking German. Um you have a, that is the first time that you have masses and masses of aircraft in the air. And I think you're seeing a lot of interaction, interaction with UFOs mm-hmm. phenomenon that otherwise would have gone unnoticed, which is kind of salient because of the reporting that's out this week about the Navy and UFOs. Oh, yeah. Well, USOs. Too. USOs, yes. Yeah, unidentified submerged objects. Yes. Yeah. But um, there, but there was a kind of a crescendo of this in the 1950s. You have the Roswell incident. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Harry Truman saw mm-hmm. a UFO on top of the White House. Yeah, you know, you have. I mean, the 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 oh the the UFO coming down in Washington is in part based on Harry Truman's reports of seeing a UFO of the Capitol. Earthworks is a flying saucer has that great scene of the capital being attacked. Yes. Yes. And that yeah. is, uh, and on a, on a more comical note, though, so does uh, uh, Mars Attacks. Oh, that's, a movie. that's a great movie. But you have uh, this becomes, you know, UFOs attacking the capital becomes kind of standard fare. For mm-hmm. alien movies, because President Freeman saw a UFO and ordered plane scrap. So um, there, there, there is a lot more uh, fascination with alien invasion, I think, in 1952, even than there is now. No, oh, yeah, and but it becomes such an easy allegory for the idea of communist invasion, like Absolutely. a lazy allegory almost. Absolutely, but. Here we're seeing it subverted. Mm-hmm. 
because the collective nature, like there's nothing, you aren't struck by how out of the ordinary the everyone's acting until there's this catalyst. Right. You know, otherwise they're completely normal. They're yeah. all now one hive mind with the alien bugs, mm -hmm. but that's normal. Yeah. So, you know, what is he saying about small town America? Yeah. What he's saying about small town America is a heck of a lot more scary than what he's saying about the aliens that are coming down, the, the bug aliens. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it, it is, uh, it is uh, a scream about American culture. Oh, yeah. Where it was going in 1953. And I think, uh, you know, he lived into the 80s. I, I think he was. He had to be pleased with how the 70s were going. Yeah, yeah. You know, like... And Ronald Reagan killed him. Uh, <laughs> him and a bunch of people in South America. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... I think, I think that there is, you know, you have a movement that comes about and... and I can't. I don't know if if these folks read Philip Dix. I got a feeling. I read this story and I pictured some hippie reading this ten years later at Berkeley. Okay, and I wonder if how much of a role Dix played in the counterculture, how widely read he was, um, because you have a counterculture movement that comes about in the 60s and runs through the 70s that Dix, you're right, Dix has to appreciate. And then we go, the pendulum swings, swings back the other way mm -hmm. in 1980 and has continued to go that direction, hopefully until now. And I think we're, I think we're, we're the pendulum is going to swing the other direction for a while. I hope so. America is really far right in a lot yep. of ways. You know, our our extreme leftists would be considered moderates in most countries. Yes, exactly. Yeah. If uh, you if you look at Bernie Sanders' uh, economic proposals and what he talks about doing, they're not dissimilar from the economic proposals of the Nixon or Eisenhower administration. Yeah, you look at Bernie Sanders up against someone like Merkel or someone, you know, the the uh, German. Uh, German Prime Minister, like, eh, yeah. 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 Um, but all that to say, I think this is a very well done story about American fear, specifically. Yeah. This is uniquely American fear. Absolutely. You know? Um, and we'll talk about, like, I, I like to hit the idea that each era has its own boogeyman. Yes. And each culture has its own boogeyman. Yes. Like, this is why American Godzilla movies don't work. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. It's because the boogeyman the American Godzilla and the Godzilla movies. Yeah. We are, in most of the good, 
uh, Godzilla movies from like the Showa era. Mm-hmm. We're the bad guys. Yes. You know? Yes. Uh, I don't know what we ever did to Japan to make them think we might be dangerous, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, some sort of big, unwieldy nuclear power rising from the sea. That's weird. That's weird, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what do you think of the aliens in this? To get on to a lighter subject. Yeah. Um, okay. Perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. I found aliens a little disappointing. Um, you could see that. I, I think, um, I think the collective high mind part is interesting. I think the physical description as bug people is, uh, to me, that's an easy out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think it's that important to the story. I don't think it is. I just was curious. Yeah. I don't, I, and I think that that's probably deliberate. You know, yeah. That's not really, you know, it's not a story that you feature. I mean, you know, he don't talk about the, the clashing mandibles and the, you know, it's, it's, that's not that kind of story. Uh, yeah. The aliens are almost incidental. Very much so. They are a plot device. They're a means to an end. They're, they're a means to an end. Yeah. Um, who's your who favorite alien in uh fiction, sci-fi? What do you think? Woo, boy, that's a tough one. You know, I like that green chick in Star Trek. Oh yeah, <laughs> but serious alien. Yeah, the scariest yeah. one. Let's say the scariest one. Scariest alien. Okay. Um, I. This is, of course, Alien is pretty doggone scary. Oh, yeah. Uh, Alien and Predator both. Yeah. I have to say one of the things that I think scares me most is um, Romulans and Klingons. Because the thought process is that the Federation gets out there and they run into these other empires. But that means that they're, if you buy into that, that means that those empires are out there. So if you will, there is a, you know, if you want to go to the Romulans, there is a Roman empire in outer space that's looking towards us. We'll go with Klingons. Here's this totally alien, almost barbaric culture that is capable of waging war with the Federation. So, and I realize that those are projections of Earth's politics onto outer space. Mm-hmm. But I find that a lot more believable and a lot more scary than I do Alien or Predator. Well, eh. um, for the record, I have a weird place in my heart. Top five like sci-fi movies. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, number one with a bullet, a Predator 2. Yeah. Love that movie. Like I love that. That's a good movie. Yeah. I love the, I love Predator One and Predator Two. But they're both yeah. good. Um Predator One has got some weird weird uh like political overtones that I'm not sure I love. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a it's a product of the eighties. Yeah. Um now I didn't think about this. The blob. Oh, that is a scary 
Because it's just consumption made flesh. Yes. Yes. And they don't really kill it. They just freeze it. Yeah. So what happens when it thaws out? That's exactly right. This is kind of, okay, the blob, and of course, you know, I love the blob. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those movies that's very demonstrative of what Dix has a problem with. Because you have, you know, the guy that owns the grocery store and the school principal, and they get up in the middle of the night and they show up in a tie and ties and shirt. You know, they're very uptight. Yeah. And they organize all the clean cut high school kids that are hoodlums, but they're not really hoodlums, you know. And they organize them to go out and they, they attack this thing with fire extinguishers. But then the government comes in in the end and freezes the blob and, and carts it off to outer space. Or carts it off to Antarctica, rather. Yeah. It'll always be cold. So you have um, the United States government comes in at the end is the big hero and fights yeah. the other. So it's kind of antithetical to the story that Dix is talking about. But as far as a scary alien critter, man, it's got to be it because it keeps growing and keeps consuming. Yeah. They ever do a sequel to The Blob? I know they did a remake in the 80s that was they really. Remake, and I think they did a sequel to the remake. Oh, okay. Neither one of them were particularly good. Mm. But they didn't do a sequel to the original Blob. And mm. I honestly. You know, I think there are some movies that are sacred. Yeah. And and should be enshrined in a library in the Vatican. And uh, they should burn people at the stake for trying to do anything different with them. Yeah. And the Bob is one of them. <laughs> There's some movies you don't ever touch. And I think the Blob is one of them. Yeah. You know, uh, that's got that theme music that just gets stuck in your head, too. Yeah. Yes. All the blob in creeps and leaps and glides and slides. <laughs> very 1950s, very early 50s music. And it, it does. It sticks yeah. with you. And there, there is an element of fun in the blob. Oh, yeah. It's a fun movie. Yeah. I mean, it's kids and dragsters and they're having a good time. But the creature itself is just, it's just scary. It's just a consumer. It's conceptually horrible. Yeah, yeah. These uh, the creatures in the Hanging Stranger, mm -hmm. I think, are metaphorically horrible. Like what they imply is horrible. Yes, but they're not conceptually. You know, I, giant wasp. I get. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, but you, get, you get this concept of, you know, to me, I have this concept of uh, rotten food, fruit. Yeah. You know, it's been infected by, it's been infested by insects. Mm. And the kid comes down and he's, he's part insect. You know, that it's kind of like they're consuming these people from the inside out, is my thought. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> that's a horrifying thought, Duke. Yes, bother. Yeah. So, what do you got to promote? What are y'all showing this week? Well, uh, 
we have started, let's, you know, I have, I don't know what we're showing this week on what channel yet. Cause just come off showing last night. We'll be on EC, Streams TV, ECN01. We'll be on Otherworlds TV and we'll be on ICTV Chattanooga, Tennessee Macaw. Probably have a different movie on each channel. So just go to TennesseeMacaw.com and you can find our social media, like our social media, and I'll post all that stuff. What I will tell you is that we went back into production yesterday. And we're getting ready to host, and it'll be a few weeks before we get it edited and together, uh, Tales of Dracula, which mm. is an independent film that was made in Pennsylvania. And it's, uh, it is an homage to the universal horror mashups, you know, like House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. And it has uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, and the werewolf in it. And we're going to host that. That'll be coming out in the next few weeks. And then we also filmed uh, the package for The Tingler with Vincent Price. Yeah. And so we'll have those two movies ready to go here in short order. I love The Tingler. It's a great way. We watched it. Um, I live with my ex-wife, and, and uh, she had never seen it. And Neil said, oh, man, you got to watch it. So we sat down and watched it this afternoon. It is a great way. It's Castle, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pure Castle. Yeah, uh, electronic devices. Yeah, yeah. Used to put uh little uh, electrodes in the seats to shock people. Yeah. In the screen. That's it. It's it's Vincent Price, William Castle with an electrode. Yeah. You know, the litigious nature of American society has really gotten rid of a lot of fun. Oh yeah, you cannot yeah. do that today. Oh no, 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 and probably shouldn't. No. Probably. <laughs> Yeah. So what are you promoting today? As always, I'm promoting Pulp Factory E-Zine, pulpfactoryzine.com. Uh, we just opened up to accept all kinds of submissions. Uh, we're accepting literature, fiction. Uh, we're accepting poetry. We're accepting critical analysis, uh, any discussions of horror in essay form. We're also uh, going to be expanding. We're, you know, serializing your novella. We've got another novella in the works for when yours is uh, finished. We're going to start serializing another. Okay. Um, of course, Blood Oaks is starting to get back out there. Good. Nice show coming up. It looks like um, we're shooting for July 23rd, but I don't know. I don't know where we're going to have it. Okay. <laughs> But we'll be playing somewhere. It, it could Good be deal. a parking lot, but we'll be playing. Good deal. Uh, you know, we just got started playing on Psycho uh, Psychotronic Frog. Yes. Yeah. Yes, uh, Psychotronic Frog is uh, Tennessee Macabre's internet radio station. That's all. Uh, we play Blood Oaks. I've rounded up many, many bands, and Blake helped me round up some bands, and uh, got a lot of music on there. So, oh, yeah. the Psychotronic Frog. Absolutely. Well, so, radio shows coming up very soon. Yeah. That's what you were saying, which I'm excited about. I love yeah. those old school radio shows. Yeah. Uh, I do, too. We've got a, a guy that does a story called Atomic Tales. And I'm going to demo that and uh, try that out in the next few days and see how that works. And then hopefully that'll be a regular weekly thing we do. 
Awesome. Well, as always, this has been Blake. And Dave. And this has been Reaper's Digest. Tune in next, uh, next time. Absolutely. Okay.